Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Uh, Alex and I are bouncing off the walls because we have a returning guest. And a very exciting returning guest. Alex, who have we got? James Holland needs literally no introduction. He's a giant of World War II contemporary literature and his latest book is out today. Woo! How long has it been <laughs> delayed, James? Uh, no, it hasn't actually. No, I sat down and wrote the first line on the 2nd of February this year. Um, and it was an incredibly tight schedule. And, and I was so stressed about the whole thing about, well, not stressed, but I was so sort of thinking, crikey, I'm, I'm, I'm not going get to get it done, that actually my beloved wife said, said, look, why don't you just go and get yourself a really cheap house or room somewhere in Cornwall and just cut yourself off and go and write it. So um, I did for the first two weeks, and I got the whole of the first part done in that two weeks in Cornwall. It was amazing, just kind of concentrated time. So I managed to meet my kind of Easter deadline for handing in, and um, it's been a bit of a scrabble then. It's, you know, because people don't sort of appreciate that once you once you've written, written, and I always forget every time I do. But you know, you get to the end, and that isn't the end at all. It's in a way, it's only the sort of beginning because then you've got to sort out the maps, you've got to sort out the pictures, you've got to go through the copy edit notes, and you've got to go through that. Then you've got all the proofreading stages, and it just goes on and on and on. Is it not really soul destroying when the proof comes back and you realise you've got to read it again, and you're like, oh, I'm just done with this now? Yeah, I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of it. I just never want to read it again. Um, yeah, it is a bit. And then finally, the kind of magical day arrives where where the finished copy arrives, you know, through the post, and it's the first one, and you've been really pumped for this moment, and you rip it out of the jiffy bag, and you look at it, and you go, "Wow, that's amazing! Wow, wow, God, God, look at that!" And you kind of flick through it, and you kind of immediately find a typo somewhere, and then you put it down, and you go, I "Hate it now! <laughs> I hate it now! There's a typo! I never want to look at it again." Um, you know what can you do? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we are talking yeah, about exactly. Sicily 43. It's awesome. Uh, you kindly sent it to me because I went to Sicily uh, last week. Well, I was very excited about the fact you were going there because I think, you know, particularly if you want to look at kind of Second World War battle, um, uh, battlefield study, out, um, Sicily's about as good as it gets. There's so much to go and see. And I always get very, very excited when other people uh, are going to go there. So you, you were probably... Um, I was slightly worried I'd overwhelmed you with kind of you've got to do this and you've got to do that and go to this and make sure you go to Cap Muro de Porco oh it was Uh-oh. brilliant um, because I looked I was like I won't be cheeky and ask him to see the book before it's out because uh, I have pre-ordered it obviously but uh, you very kindly <laughs> and it's brilliant and it was great to have oh, all the maps the maps were outstanding um, to go up and down especially the British stuff so it's awesome it's going to be another smash hit congratulations but more importantly well, thank you we have Thank quickly you. discussed this. Have you had any cricket? Yes, I have. I have. I've had. Um, I've actually really not done too badly, actually. And and actually, my season average was was really good um, until Saturday when I got a third ball duck, which was a bit annoying. But you know. So, but you are having to clean the ball every six overs, and that's. An- <laughs> it's quite annoying. 
It's quite like it also sort of slightly depends on who you're playing with. But we had a we had a um, a guy from the committee of the Dorset League was playing in on the, in the Oppo on on Saturday. So obviously we were doing it to the doing it to the letter. But you know he played other sides and kind of everyone sort of slightly forgets about all that. Yeah, we've agreed we're done with Corona now, aren't we? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Get it. Yeah, get totally. in the bin. Go totally. away. But let's talk about Sicily and um, Operation Husky. Yeah. It was so that I've seen people, there were technically more people involved in this than D-Day, weren't they? On the landing day alone, in terms of in terms of ships involved and vehicles involved, absolutely no way. It was it was way behind um, D-Day. But in terms of men dropped on D-Day onto the beaches or from the air um, or from from other landing craft, um, it, it trumps it by about 5,000 men. Um, and the reason why is because they were very det- they, they had no idea when they were planning it. So they're planning it from kind of sort of you know through really mainly through April, middle of March through through April 1943 to you know finally get signed off the the, the venture plan gets signed off on the second of May 1943, which is still eleven days before the end of the Tunisia campaign. So you're you're having to come up with a plan when you have absolutely no idea what the strength of the opposition is going to be. And, and what I think a lot of people forget is that when you are launching an amphibious operation of this magnitude, there is one overriding thing that must not be allowed to happen, and that is that it fails. You know, that is just an absolute no-no. That that trumps literally everything. And the trouble is, is that the, the historiography, the narrative of the Sicilian campaign has been clouded by the fact that it was won in 38 days and that the opposition, when they did land, was on the whole, pretty light. I mean, some of the Americans might dispute that down at Jella, but but by and large, you know, certainly compared to kind of D Day and stuff, it was it was pretty light oppo, and so that is kind of so you, people are kind of sort of going uh, sort of being wise after the after the after the event really, whereas most of the senior commanders were were also involved in the Tunisia campaign, so it's not like they didn't have their hands full at the time um, they were planning it, and as I say, they had no idea what it was going to be, and it's a very interesting thing because. Uh, it makes perfect sense that that Eighth Army, British Eighth Army, would take the kind of the number one role in the landing because they're the most experienced, and you know the Americans at this stage of the war are still kind of you know they're quite new to it, and U.S. Two Corps as a as a corps has only been operating since kind of February 1943, so only a matter of a couple of months at the time that they're planning it. Not even an army scale, it's just a corps scale. You know, corps is, you need at least two corps to make an army. So it makes perfect sense that they would have the lion's share. And therefore, Montgomery, who was 8th Army commander, has quite a big say in how it, the, the land bit of it should look, you know, how the kind of landing part of it should look. And his big concern, um, particularly after what happens at the end of the Tunisian campaign, is that actually the Italians might put up quite a big fight because 8th Army has been blocked in the final stages of the Tunisian campaign up at a place called Infideville. Um, and there's a very famous stand where the, the, the um, uh, 28 Maori Battalion come up against the um, Italians at a place called Decruna. It's an incredibly tough fight. Um, and actually, 8th Army sort of hit a bit of a brick wall. And the, and the opposition there is predominantly not German troops, but Italian troops. And so Montgomery, quite understandably, goes, well, hang on a minute, you know, if they're kind of being this tough now as we're, as the Tunisia campaign is kind of, to all intents and purposes, over, you know, this is, it's, only one, it's only going one way. What's it going to be like when we get to Sicily and that's actually Italian soil, you know? 
we've all been a bit rude about the Italians, but they might prove a really tough nut. So therefore, he says, you know, I insist that, you know, we have a very, very troop heavy landing. And that is because the invasion has to succeed. It cannot fail. You know, whether you win the whole island in 10 days, two months, three months, 38 days, whatever, is neither here nor there in that in, in that kind of planning for it. And so consequently, when the planning, when the invasion actually happens on the 10th of July, it is very, very troop heavy. And that comes at a massive cost because what happens is, is the coastal divisions that are defending Sicily, as it turns out in July 1943, are actually very poorly trained, very poorly equipped troops. And actually, Italy is spent um, and the defences are woeful. And, they, you know, the British and the Americans managed to make their ground pretty easily. Um, but that's with the benefit of hindsight. And it was unquestionably the right decision to make at the time of the planning. It's just that because of that, what that meant was you then got lots and lots of troops and the troops can only be landed to the sacrifice of something else. And the something else is machinery. It's it's motorised transport, which means that they've then got to rush up north into the plain of Catania, which is the kind of is the route up to Messina, which is in the far east corner of Sicily, which is the kind of key to the whole thing, because that's. That's where the Straits of Messina between there and the southern Italy are kind of like a mile and a half wide. That's obviously your kind of, that's your target. And so you want to get there as quickly as possible. But obviously they then can't move particularly quickly because most of them are on foot. And the whole point about the British Army is that it's highly mechanised and indeed the American Army as well. So so there is a price to be paid for that incredibly heavy landing of, of troops on day day. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, just to looking at the planning of the campaign. So obviously it's not planned overnight. And like you say, it was planned in conjunction while the North African campaign was still going on. Um, and there's a lot of variables also yeah. as well tactically what problems did the allies face i'm just going to lay it out there as soon as you get off the beaches hills lots of climbing yes yeah 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 i mean it's it you know sicily is a brutal place in which to fight a war i mean really really tough and you know infrastructure on the island is not good there's not uh, there's a, obviously there's a road network but there's not that many um tarmac road asphalted roads 
most of them are what are called strada bianca which are these kind of sort of rough dirt roads in fact you still get some of those in italy now but but uh, and obviously it's really really hot i mean you know if you look at your bidecker from um the travel guides from the 1930s it says you know one thing that's it's you know avoid going to sicily in july or august yeah <laughs> <It's> <laughs> exactly having just like done a 10-day road trip uh We've yeah. got to talk about the heat. I've been sulking about walking a mile and a half to get to a Norman Castle at the top. And obviously I can stop and have a gin and tonic whenever I want and then just get back in an yeah. air-conditioned car. How much equipment yeah. would they have been lagging as well? It would have been awful, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely horrendous. Yeah, absolutely horrendous. Just really, really hot. Loads of flies, loads of mozzies, loads of malaria-carrying mozzies as well and of course because a lot of the roads are, are dust you know dirt roads you know clouds of dust kind of seen up so the enemy can see for miles i mean the most amazing thing really is when you look at the um i mean i think um, alex you went to some of the british invasion beaches and you can see there's a huge great um kind of uh um, sort of massive behind so you, you 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 land on the beaches and then there's a kind of nice sort of you know low-lying area and then literally just a few miles back isn't it like five miles back there's this huge ridge of rock isn't there and you kind of thought anyone with a kind of you know observer post on there directing artillery could make could make it um could make the landings very very difficult and of course that is also being borne in mind when they're kind of making the um invasion plan um yeah you know it's 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 a tough place in which to fight and um you know, I think the Allies are right to be cautious because, as I say, I keep saying, you know, you, th- this. Can you just think of the magnitude and scale of trying to mount an operation this big when you haven't even got your home base? I mean, you know, you're not you're not operating from Britain, where you've got factories and railways and infrastructure and ports and all the rest of it. You're operating from North Africa, which you've only recently just taken over, and Sicily. Yeah, and Sicily's a bloody big island, and from Egypt. And you've got to, you know, all those landing craft, all those landing ships, all those um, liberty ships and merchant vessels, all those warships, they've all got to be collected. Everyone's got to be put on the right place at the right time. They've all got to be landed in the right place at the right time. I mean, it's just an absolute nightmare. It's, the, the scale of it is so enormous that, you you know, this is you know it's one of the reasons why failure is just so completely unthinkable and why it is such a massive undertaking. And, of course, there's, there's huge... Uh, debate over what you do because Sicily is really big and there's there's the, the Luftwaffe and the Regia Aeronautica, the, the Italian Air Force, have got airfields in the west of Sicily and they've got them in the southeast, and they've got them in the south and they've got them in the centre. And, and you know, one thing that is absolutely a prerequisite for any invasion of this kind is that you have total control of the airspace over the invasion front. But that basically means total control of the airspace over Sicily. It doesn't mean just, you know, over kind of... How Beach uh, at Acid North. It means the whole shebang, and so the the are you know the so the air forces, the Allied air forces, are really nervous about having uh, 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 landings just in the centre and the southeast of the country. Because what about the west? Um, and the trouble is, is if you if you do landings um, at the same time in the west of the island as well as the southeast and the central south, you're you're just spreading yourself too thin, and those those forces that are being landed aren't mutually supporting enough. And so you've got a dilemma that you can't really get around. And the only way to get around that is to just hammer the the um, the Axis air forces beforehand. And boy, do the Allied air forces make a good job of that. You know, because what the Allied air forces have got to do beforehand is they've got to neutralise enemy air forces they've got to cut off lines of supply they've got to provide protection for the invasion force they've got a whole host of tasks that they've got to do they've got to enact deception measures as well um so the the task for the allied air forces 
are absolutely enormous beforehand, and yet they do it with 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 bells on. And it's quite interesting because you can read books about the Sicilian campaign where they're complaining about their Allied air effort, and you just think, what? How could you possibly complain about this? It was just absolutely phenomenal. All of this sounds pretty much like the Pacific and all the problems that they faced there as well. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, many, many similar ones. I guess you know, not as challenging as sort of going. No, quite so, you know, covering the distances um, that you have in the Pacific. And also one of the problems in the Pacific, of course, is that, you know, quite often you're dealing with very, very small islands, um, you know, where there is very little room for manoeuvre. Um, but, yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, when you're thinking about the Allies in the Second World War, you know, we still, we're still so land-centric, aren't we? You know, we still think of it about the ground campaign, really. What I think a lot of people forget is that the Allied navies and the Allied air forces were just absolutely stupendously good. You know, they're kind of world beaters by a country mile by this stage of the war, by this middle stage of kind of 1943. Um, and, and, you know, the Allies are seeing warfare in terms of kind of all three dimensions. You know, it's a war in the air, it's a war on sea, it's a war on land, and all three are given, kind of given equal billing and are equally mutually supporting you know the access forces just don't have that that luxury and don't have that capacity to be able to kind of fight in those ways and because they're continentalist anyway you know their their, their horizons are kind of narrower so hitler then decides to take a gamble yeah so the interesting thing about hitler and the sun you know it's often said that you know it, Churchill's line about the soft underbelly of, of Europe is often sort of quoted back at him but actually the one person who's really really obsessed about the Mediterranean is hitler and he always has been. And the whole point about the Pact of Steel, which he sets up with, with the Italians in, um, in 1939, is that is that is not about fighting a war side by side together, you know, with equal billing. This is about splitting up kind of spheres of influence. And the whole idea from Hitler's point of view is that Italy, Italy can do the southern bit because Germany, of course, is in the centre of Europe um, and, and is vulnerable for attack from attack from multiple different approaches and the idea about the italy is is that that kind of removes the southern threat from hitler's agenda but of course mussolini then makes a massive hash of it he invades greece and nearly loses um he then invades egypt and gets his asses wet by the brits in 1940 1941 um and so germany has to go and go and rescue them there which is why the germans are there uh, and hitler becomes increasingly paranoid that the Allies are going to attack up through that southern flank, up through, uh, he thinks it's going to be Greece and the Balkans. And the reason he thinks that is because that is what he would do. And that's because he thinks that strategically, the Balkans are the most important thing for him. And the main reason for that, in turn, is because that's where the Romanian oil fields are at Plesti. And those are the only oil fields that Hitler has access to. All the other fuel they produce is synthetic, made from coal. And Shortages of fuel are one of the biggest headaches that Hitler has. So he's utterly convinced that that is where the Allies are going to land, even though logic would tell you that it really has to be Sicily because you can't do an invasion, an amphibious invasion, without that prerequisite of air cover. And Greece and the Balkans are just too far away from Allied bases. The only possible alternative is Sardinia, but that is really, really pushing it. Everything about it suggests that it should be, should be Sicily. Um, but you know his gamble is to kind of sort of spread spread his 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 um his bet a little bit um and he has you know um 
German forces poised all over the place. You know, there's only a couple of divisions in um, in Sicily itself by the, the, the time of the invasion, but there are plenty more kind of hovering in the background in southern France, in um, in northern Italy, and, and and elsewhere, and of course in Greece as well. So let's start with the Brits and the Canadians. So they land on the eastern side of the island. What happens? Yeah, so they land. They land pretty pretty successfully, and and. Um, you know, one of the interesting features about it, so you've got the Canadians down in the kind of sort of, you know, the Burkino um, point right down in the bottom of the southeast. Then you've got 51st Highland Division. Then you've got 30 Corps. And then you've got 13 Corps at the top. 13 Corps is the one that's got a strike towards Syracuse, which is the first port that they need to get. Then the next one up is, um, um, is Augusta. These are two kind of sort of, they're important ports, but they're kind of, you know, they're, they're, in terms of capacity, they're not great. The big one is then is then Catania, which is a kind of, you know, 40 miles further up the track. Um, what is really interesting, though, is that 13 Corps' objective on D-Day, and they're the northernmost landing point on that kind of southeast coast, is Syracuse, which is 10 miles away from the northernmost landing points. And the commander of 13 Corps is Miles Dempsey, who a year later, just under a year later, is obviously commander of British Second Army for Normandy. And what is the objective for Second Army on D-Day? It is the capture of Colm, which is 10 miles away. And on D-Day, they do manage it on Husky. They do get Syracuse on day one. And, um, um, you know, so it proves that it, it, it sort of it can be done. You know, there is there is quite clearly a link there. So meanwhile, the Americans have landed at the Gulf of Gela. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's their experience? Yeah, they have a slightly, a slightly tougher one. I mean, they're incredibly lucky that, that Kesselring, who is the um, German commander-in-chief, of German forces in the south has made a really catastrophic error, tactical error, just a few days before, because he's got his 15th Panzer Grenadier Division in the centre of the island, which would be covering that central southern invasion by the Americans. And for some bizarre reason, just a few days beforehand, he switches them and moves them to the west of the island and replaces them with the Hermann Goering Division, which at the time are pretty inexperienced and you know only recently cobbled together. So you've got the Hermann Goering Division, which also includes a company of Tiger tanks, have just been moved into the central area. And of course, they're not familiar with the ground at all. Whereas the 15th Panzer Grenadier Division, who've been there kind of, you know, six weeks or something, are completely familiar with that, that neck of the woods. So it's just a really bad area that, that is very fortunate for the Allies. You've also got um, a division of um, Italian infantry, which is not great, but is better than most of the Italian troops um, on Sicily. And they counterattack on day one and are repulsed and then put in a quite substantially heavy counterattack on day two on the 11th of July, um, which gets close to kind of making a breakthrough down to the coast, but but is stopped in the nick of time. Um, and the situation is, is very rapidly reversed. And the Americans do really, really well. They have an incredibly difficult landing because there's a very heavy swell. And the swell is much as the, the prevailing wind is coming from the kind of southwest. So it's it, it's much more exposed there than it is on the southeast of, of Sicily, where you've got the kind of protection of the high ground and everything. Sort of, so the the swell on the southeast is bad, but it's nothing like as bad as it is on the central southern area. And the actual unloading process is incredibly complicated, incredibly difficult. And the Americans pull it off with with bells on. They do really, really well. And this is also despite an absolutely catastrophic um, airborne landing operation where the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment landed and just scattered to the four winds. You know, all the airborne operations are a total fiasco. It has to be said. This is not a glorious moment for the Italians, is it? This is the stereotypical that what they get mocked for. 
You know, the Italians are not ready for a, for a, a modern war in the, ter- in, in the same sense of the Americans, Germans, British, and even to a certain extent the Japanese, you know, at the start of the war. They're just, they're just five, ten years behind. And they're, they're thinking, their, 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 their tactics, their operational level, everything they're doing is just behind the game. It's just, it's just not good enough. And their morale has been shot. And, an army that has no morale is just not really much of an army. And their shortcomings are just woefully exposed on Sicily. Um, you know, all the best troops that they've had have already been put in the bag in, in North Africa. So what you've got less left are the kind of dregs anyway, the kind of new recruits, people whose heart isn't in it. A lot of the Sicilians, um, units, coastal units are just... You know, again, their heart's not in it at all. They just want to go home. They're not interested in fighting anymore. They know that Italy's a busted flush. You know, so yeah, no, it's not. It's not their finest moment. It's fair to say. Is the initial onslaught a success? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a success. It's a complete success. It's a, the Allies do incredibly well. And and again, you know, it's not just about about who can fire the most bullets. It's about getting stuff out of ships out of landing craft onto land as quickly as possible in an as an organized a way as possible that's the key to it and you know it is when you consider they've never mounted something on this scale before they absolutely do it with bells on it's just that the follow-up is then not as fast as they would have liked. First of all, the Americans do have to deal with a quite substantial counterattack, which they do, and they see off. But they're not in really any position to kind of start really expanding the bridgehead till kind of, you know, D plus two plus three. Um, the British are able to kind of get off the uh, off the beaches and start expanding the bridgehead pretty quickly. But because of a lack of motorised vehicles, because of this troop-heavy landing... Um, they're a bit slower. And what happens is the Germans in that southeast corner of, of Sicily start to organise themselves. They start to realise that, hang on a minute, they're not going to actually deal with the Italians. They're, they're going to operate separately. Um, and they're able, because of the shortage of roads, because there's not very many roads, they're able to block these quite successfully with these delaying actions. So the whole idea is to send forward groups of German troops on these key arteries, these key roads heading north, of which there are just a handful and you don't need an awful lot of troops for that. You know, you need, you know, a handful of machine guns, a few mortars, you know, a couple of high-velocity anti-tank guns, and you're kind of good to go. Uh, and, and all you've got to do is hold off the Allies from getting into the, the plain of Catania until the German troops on Sicily can organise themselves into a cohesive defensive line. And that line is going to be known as the Hauptkampf Linear. And that is going to be on the far side of the plain of Catania. So it's coming from just south of Catania, this big city, this big port on the east coast of Sicily, across the top of the plain, using the foothills to, for, for observation, for artillery, forward pickets with, with machine guns and mortars and all the rest of it. And from those positions, those foothills of Mount Etna, which dominates this massive volcano, which dominates the whole of the kind of northeast triangle corner of, of Sicily, you can dominate the whole of the plain of Catania. So the key is to make sure that the bulk of German troops are able to get in behind that line and get themselves organised and back on balance before the British and Canadians can get themselves into the plain of Catania um, in some kind of order themselves. And that is what they're able to do. And they're able to do that by having these blocking positions, you know, key bridges, key roads, and the, and the terrain completely 
lends itself to that. And, and, and Alex, I'm not sure if you went into those kind of that, that road from kind of Malili to Villas Mundo uh, um, to Lentini, where there's all those bunkers along there. But you, but if you do go along there, you can just completely see how a German blocking position could hold up the British. You know, suddenly there's a big gorge. Look down from group. there, and it's like bugger that. Bugger oh. that here. Yeah, you just you know you're just not going to get through through easily. You just you just can't. And you know because what happens is you send forward a, an infantry battalion that comes up against a German defensive position, sprayed with machine guns, sprayed with mortars, sprayed with with, with artillery fire. They hit the deck. They have to then wait for their own artillery and tanks and armour and everything to, to catch up. That takes a bit of time. Before you know where you are, you've, you're delayed by 36 hours, 48 hours. And that's two crucial days in which you're not getting forward into the plane of Catania. So you can sort of see how it unfolds. It's not a criticism of, of the troops in any, in any shape or form. It's just, it's just the nature of the terrain and the warfare that's being fought in that part of Sicily. You know, if your troops actually stand and hold the ground, it's, kind of, it's, it's a really tough nut to crack. I love that as you get more into the campaign, the maps are just basically arrows pointing everywhere. (laughs) I think on paper, it's like, what the hell are they doing? But on the ground, you'll be like, oh, they're working around the high ground, basically. Yeah, and and you're you're constantly being canalised. So, you know, one of the key bridges... so So going north, you've got this coastal road, which is pretty crappy. Then you've got another road, which is the kind of the main road. And the reason that's the main road is because the Sicilians historically have always been attacked by pirates and and, and corsairs and all the rest of it. And so their main habitations are always on high ground in from the sea so that they can see the enemy coming. And so they can't be sort of, you know, they're not exposed to snatch and grabs from pirates. And so the main road obviously links these hilltop towns, this Malili and Villas Mundo and Lentini, which I've just mentioned. So that is the main road heading north. I think it's kind of Highway 14, if I remember rightly. And then, then you've got another run, road going further inland as well. But th- all these three roads all converge just to the north of Lentini as it comes down off the high ground at a place crossing a river, the River Sumeto, which in turn has just absorbed two other um, the Detaino and the Gornalunga. Um, and so these three rivers come to a point at the same time as a three roads come to a point across this bridge called the Primasoli Bridge. And that bridge obviously is completely key to getting into the Catania Plain and then onto Catania and then from there on, on up towards sort of past Etna and up to Messina. So this bridge is absolutely key and it's key that it's kept intact. So this is where airborne troops come in. And the whole idea is, is that you would drop your, your paratroopers to get these key bridges um, and they were coming at night. But the whole thing is a, just a total fiasco. Something like 16% of the British paratroopers that are dropped are actually involved in the fighting because that's all there is. And, and of course, the Germans have also recognised that this is um, a key ground and a key bridge too. So they've also sent in their Fauschenjäger, their paratroopers, who've been kind of bussed in quickly, um, airdropped in um, from southern France. And these troops are really, really good troops. You know, they're riddled with hugely experienced men from the Eastern Front and from the Blitzkrieg years and all the rest of it. They're absolutely kind of just chock full of rapid firing machine guns and mortars and so on. And it's an incredibly tough fight. And because of those blocking positions, the whole point about airborne operations is they are just coup de main operations. So the idea is that you drop your paratroopers in really quickly. They secure the bridge. Then in a matter of hours later, the kind of, you know, the the armour and the infantry then come up and meet up and, and, and take over, you know. Lightly armed paratroopers are not designed to kind of hold things for kind of several days at a time. And what happens is the paratroopers do hold on. But by that point, the Germans are starting to regain their balance. The kind of the quick hustling into the Catania plane by the Allies, by the British hasn't happened. 
you know, the, the paratroopers, the German paratroopers have dug in and a kind of really, really brutal, brutal fight happens. And it's really interesting because if you then look at the kind of operations, the special forces operations which are mounted from the sea, they're incredibly successful and work incredibly well without any of the chaos and mayhem of kind of troops being spread to the four winds, which happens with all the airborne operations, whether they're the glider operations on D-Day or whether they're kind of, you know, um, and, and American air, um, parachute operations on D-Day and D plus one or the um, British paratroop operations, which happen on the Primasoli Bridge. You know, you look at the SRS, which is effectively the SAS led by Paddy Main, 285 men, you know, landed by sea on D-Day on this Capo Muro de Porco, which you've been to, haven't you, Alex, and, and, and seen. You know, it's very close, very similar in many ways to Pont de Hoc in, in Normandy. They're completely successful. You know, one dead, two wounded in the entire operation. I mean, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and ditto the commandos when they're taking the Milati Bridge, uh, which is just south of, um, a little bit to the south of, of, of the Primasoli Bridge. You know, they take that again. You know, all their troops reach their objective without any problem at all. And the truth is that this stage of the war, airborne operations are still in their infancy. And everyone's been a bit too dazzled by what the Germans have done in the first part of the war. They haven't really kind of fought it through. And they haven't fought through this this problem you have that you've got the best trained, most highly motivated troops um, being delivered by the least trained and least motivated air um, aircrew, uh, and it's just they're just not well enough trained for the task that's been given them on Sicily. Ultimately, everything converges around the base of Mount Etna. Yeah. Is this about damage limitation now for the Germans? Yeah, absolutely, it is. It's about delaying. It's about keeping them, as, you know, at bay as long as possible. It's about keeping the Italians in the war as long as possible. Um, it's just holding them up. It's just, you know. Yeah, absolutely it is. You know, the, the island is completely lost. Everyone knows that. But the hope is that they can keep the Allies at bay for kind of months, draining, you know, uh, be a massive drain on Allied resources, um, tie things up, delay the um, um, cross-channel invasion, which they know has inevitably got to happen at some point, probably in 1944, possibly even in 1943 at that stage, they're not sure. So, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, and again, the terrain completely favours them. You've got this tapering point up to the uh, up to the Straits of Messina, which means that as you pull back from the from the German point of view, you so you can pull back men, and you rec- because your your um, because it's tapered, it means you can um, you have shorter defensive lines, which means they require less men. Blah blah blah. Tell us about final victory on the island. How embarrassing is it for Hitler and the Axis, and how strategically damaging? So from from the Axis point of view and from Hitler's point of view, it's, you know, it's it's an absolute catastrophe. And by kind of, you know, by this stage of 1943, don't forget, this is also happening at the same time that, you know, that the the Kursk battle, Operation Zitadel is happening. So, you know, Operation Zitadel, the offensive, uh, which is the last major offensive of the the Germans um, attempt on the Eastern Front, that is called off because of the invasion of Sicily. Um, You know, catastrophic losses um, to... Axis air power, aircraft lost in the Mediterranean in the summer of 1943 as well. I mean, it is an absolute disaster. I mean, you know, the the noose absolutely is tightening around Nazi Germany at this point. James, before we go, tell us, where can we get your book? Uh, You can get the book anywhere, actually. You can get it on Amazon, usual places. um, But you can also get it in Waterstones, where there's a special edition. So there's a little added content there. Um, and I think they'll be doing a deal on it, so I don't think you'll be paying full whack. But yeah, there's sort of a little bit of extra content and pictures and stuff. So um, I would recommend that if you are interested in getting it, Waterstones is your first port of call. 
You are doing a launch event with them, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, no, I am with with my, with my mucker Al Murray. Yeah, so we're doing we're doing something there. That'll be good fun. If anyone's listening and wants to buy me that copy and send it to Poland, I'll be very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a copy, Alina. Don't worry. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you. But seriously, thank you for joining us and telling us about this battle that I had not, I knew nothing about. So I'm going to get your book and I'm going to read some more about it. Well, thank you. I mean, it is a, it's a great story. It's got everything. It really has. It's got sort of, you know, incredible. It's got Monty. It's got Patton. It's got Tiger tanks. It's got amazing air power, naval power, special forces, SAS, Paddy Main, Jim Gavin of the American Airborne Forces. You know, it's got competition it's got mad germans it's got the whole shooting match and the battlefield tour has got pizza ice cream pasta beaches and just why everyone is not flocking there um under the premise of looking at world war ii i cannot imagine what's not to like i mean literally anyway thank you very much for having me on Join us tomorrow when Becky Laxton Bass will be with us. She is a historian and tour guide and she's going to talk to you all about some of her favourite women in London's history. This is great. Some of them I'd heard of but didn't know anything about and others were a total mystery to me. But she's made some excellent choices. Don't forget you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.